Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Back in 1960, in Fellini's La Dolce Vita, the world took note of the decadence of life in the Italian capital of Rome. Inspired by two major political sex scandals of the era, the film would win the 1960 Palme d'Or in Cannes and depicted a Rome that was ultra-sophisticated, ultra-modern, ultra-decadent, and ultra-cool. Arguably today, Rome is a kind of antidote to America. There's less sexuality, less modernity, less sophistication, and less decadence. Oh, how the tables have switched so dramatically. What does it say about the state of love, sex, and popular culture in the 21st century? But more importantly, for those that were there in the 1950s, what does it say about a very special place in a special time? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Sean Levy. He's a former film critic. He's the best-selling author of Rat Pack Confidential and of Paul Newman, A Life. It is my pleasure to welcome Sean Levy back to this program to talk about Dolce Vita Confidential. Sean Levy, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to have you here. When we think about this period, and as you researched it and really dug into it, how much of what we remember about it, what's been written about it, how much of it is mythology, and how much of it is really about how cool it was at the time? You know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question because the mythology that we have of this period of Roman history comes to us mainly in the form of Fellini's film, La Dolce Vita. And La Dolce Vita is at once a documentary of the time and a critique of the time. Um, Many people who were on the Roman scene in the fashion world, in the cinema world, in society are in the film playing characters like themselves. And at the same time, Fellini, while he's celebrating them with their presence, is also casting a very cold eye on them and their behavior and and, you know, wondering if, if this is the, the, the world we want to live in. So it's, we remember it through this filter that's at once celebratory and uh, repertorial, but also a critique. So I guess the question then becomes the degree to which Fellini and the film really captured the zeitgeist of Rome at that time. Yeah, I, w- I would say completely. Um, from scene to scene, either you're looking at something that was based on real events or based on something that was so commonplace at the moment that it seemed like a specific real event. Mm-hmm. And Fellini knew everybody in every quarter of the Roman culture of the period, the fashion world, the cinema world, the world of journalism, the world of the paparazzi, the world of the high life of Via Veneto. So he was he was plucking from what was right around him. Um, it, it, it's remarkable. The more I learned about specific individuals and specific incidents, the more La Dolce Vita seemed like a documentary. Why Rome in the 1950s? What was it about the elements that came together there that created this life that we're talking about? Well, you know, it's it's crazy that that a capital city of a nation that was demonstrably the bad guys in a war a decade previous should become the world capital of sophistication and, and uh, chic, you know, in, 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 out of nowhere. I mean, at the end of the 40s, we thought of Italy and we thought of starving children, the bicycle thief, shoe shine. And five, six years later, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the world capital of, of, of swells and, and high fashion and, and big movie budgets. And I think that partly it was done by design, 
the U.S. and Italian governments collaborated on some economic incentives that favored the fashion industry and the film industry, which, of course, go hand in hand. And partly it was because it's Rome. Uh, you know, they're, they're, for 3,000 years, they've been wrecked and come back. Um, the, the, the city is ruins upon ruins upon ruins. And that's not that's not an aspersion to them. That shows Romans that they, they have the right formula to carry on and keep living. There's a scene in Catch-22 where uh, the old man in the brothel says to the lead character, you Americans don't know which wars to lose. And uh, the Italians do. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, um, they, they, they lost a war and won the peace, as, as we said of the Germans and the Japanese. Um, and... It all happened in, in this very short span of time and in popular culture. The other part of the popular culture at the time, and this goes to what you were talking about in terms of the movie and, and the people that were in it, is that it gave rise to a kind of unique, not unique from the perspective of today, but certainly at the time, of celebrity culture then. Yes. You, you know, Rome had a very small... Um, number of nightclubs and hotspots where celebrities would meet VIPs, um, princes, of course, and, you know, papal princes, it being Italy, but also movie makers, fashion people, models, this sort of person, uh, uh, five-star vacationers. And they all met in, 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 you know, very few spots, mainly along and around Via Veneto in central Rome. But, um, the unique phenomenon that was that really made this tiny phenomenon explode into a global sensation was that there were these photographers. They didn't exist in other places. There were people who photographed celebrities for a living. There were tabloid photographers. Those that was all over the world. People like Ouija and Henri Cartier-Bresson shooting on the street. But nowhere prior to Rome in the fifties was there the phenomenon of a pack of photographers chasing down celebrities and trying to get shots of them in embarrassing or even incriminating postures. Um, there wasn't even a name for it until Fellini's film. Uh, the, the, the main photographer in the, in the movie La Dolce Vita, who pals around with the protagonist, is a word that Fellini and his uh, screenwriters invented, paparazzo. And that became the name, paparazzo, and the plural being paparazzi, uh, that became the name for this phenomenon, which had not existed before, for better or for worse. Um, the, the original paparazzi, the, the, the sort of instigating event, was a murder case that involved Italian politics and a cover-up and a, a scandal with police. But that quickly bled over into seeing if they could you know, get a rise out of Tony Francioso or King Farouk by taking a picture of them in a nightclub. Um, and that, unfortunately, is the DNA that passed down. To what extent were the political and sex scandals of the time a part of this story? Well, they, they kind of instigated it. You know, while the, while the fashion world was, was thriving, but, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a niche, and while the, the film world was sort of getting back on its legs after the destruction of, of the facilities for the Italian film industry, um, one of the chief forms of news gathering and news distribution was glossy magazines with lots of pictures. And if there was a hint of scandal in the air, they would send out these, these guys, these young photographers um, and you know, gossip reporters to get anything they could on 
the people involved in, in the scandal. Um, and there was this one particular murder of a woman named, uh, a young woman named Wilma Montessi in 1952. Um, and it seemed to, it, it literally went on for a decade. It was more than a decade until the final trial in this murder took place. And in that time, um, it, it, it spread. It didn't go as far as the Vatican, but it spread throughout the Italian government, throughout the Italian media. People were involved or you know, reputed to be involved. And that sort of energy that kept boiling up. Imagine if the O.J. Simpson trial, say, had wound up going all the way to Congress, that there was some involved, suspicion of involvement of, 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 of the House of Representatives. And it lasted for a decade and not just say two or three years which is what happened that's what it was like for for italy um it seemed that there was constantly a scandal on the front burner of the news the fact that it took place in the shadow of the vatican in the shadow of catholicism what role did that play well it's it's a funny thing you know it didn't stop anyone from having exactly the good time they wanted to have <laughs> again this is rome and they were partying like this before the catholic church was founded so this this is nothing new to romans and and that's a really important thing to remember when you when you speak to someone who's a roman native and they can trace their ancestry back centuries i'm not talking about you know royalty i'm talking about like a taxi driver um, you, you realize you're dealing with, with people who, who have a different relationship to the institutions of authority than Americans do. Um, the, the useful thing from a historical perspective is that any time anything went wrong or, or, or there was something untoward going on in the news, the Vatican would denounce it in their newspaper, which meant that sometimes my first indication as a researcher that there was a scandal was the Vatican was denouncing it. So I would say, oh, what was this? <laughs> you know, here's the L'Osservatore Romano, the, Italian, the Vatican newspaper, complaining about such and such, and then I could find such and such. Um, you know, nobody stopped what they were doing, you know, when they were involved in, you know, using drugs, attending orgies, strip teases, brothels, all, all the vices that were being practiced in 50s Rome. Nobody, nobody stopped in their tracks and said, gee, what would the Pope think? Uh, they, they, were, they, were, they were walking distance from the Vatican, and they carried on as they wished. In many ways, it did seem like so much of what went on, so much of the attitudes of what went on, in terms of personal freedom and, and, and sexuality and, and individual choices was in response to the kind of failed institutions and the bureaucratic institutions of the time. Yes. You know, the, the, one of the key things that, that happened, of course, was the fall of Mussolini and fascism. Um, it happened, you know, all, the popular arts, the, uh, the, the tabloid media, um, even, even things like nightclubs allowing performers, uh, many of these were, were suspended under fascism and, and then of course by the war. Um, but after that was over, um, it was like someone being locked in a, in, in an airless room and then being allowed, you know, to, to run out in a park on a, on a fresh you know, lawn on a sunny day. You know, they were almost drunk with the, with the liberty that was afforded them. But that said, the fascists knew how to party too. And there, there were, there were quite a number of, you know, uh, uh, racy things going on then. They just weren't publicized because the media was under strict state control. How did the rest of Europe view what was happening in Rome? 
Rome, you know, anyone who knew the, the worlds of film, fashion, or media understood that Rome was forward, that, you know, what, whatever was going on elsewhere, um, nothing could compare. Um, Paris had an underground that was a little intellectual, and, you know, we think of the existentialists on the left bank. England was starting to bubble up with the energy that would become the swinging London of the 60s. But when I, I wrote a book called Ready, Steady, Go about swinging London, and there were people who said to me, well, I came here in the 50s, but there was nothing going on. And then I went to Rome and I wound up staying there for six years. Um, and, and that was the attitude that, that you know, if, if you wanted to have, have a great time, if you wanted to live cheaply, if you wanted to dress well, if you wanted to wander into a cafe and see... Ava Gardner or King Farouk or, um, you know, uh, corrupt politicians who were in the tabloids all day, you could go to Rome and it was it was right there for you. Talk a little bit about the personalities, the larger than life personalities at the time. First and foremost, as you talk about it, Sophia Loren. Well, Sophia Loren, you know, uh, it helps to have a movie star in the middle of a book. And Sophia Loren's story, um, the Italians talk about the period after the war. They call it Il Boom, the boom. And Sophia Loren's career follows it um, almost almost step for step. She was born um, to an unwed mother in a suburb of Naples in the 30s. Um, this was a family that was so so poor that the family had to give up their meat rations during the war um, for Sophia and her sister to be um, seen to by a wet nurse. Um, they, they lived in a rat-infested cave for a while. Ten years later, 15 years later, she's going up to Rome to be an extra in American costume epics like Quo Vadis. A few years after that, she's winning beauty pageants and being courted for the movies. And all the while, the Italian progress mirrors her personal progress. Of course, nothing is as meteoric as her career. Um, she won an Oscar in her 20s for acting in Italian in the, in the film known in English as Two Women, in which she's superb. Um, and you can watch her. You know, many of her earliest film appearances, she's, she's compelling, she's dynamic, but she's She's raw. She, she's not a good actor. She, she's a good poser. She had been a model, um, but she learned to act. And you can see it virtually in real time if you watch her films chronologically. And she's charming and she's gorgeous and she has wonderful rapport with people like Cary Grant and, of course, Marcello Mastroianni. Um, and she was also a figure of scandal and, and debate. Um, she followed Gina Lola Brigida, who was the first of the big Italian post-war stars to make a name for herself. And Gina was the good girl with this steady marriage. Sophia wound up being the bad girl because she fell in love with a man who was 20 years older than her and already married with children. And she had to leave Italy and not work in Italy for years because... A, the Italian press hounded her, but B, the Italian government actually wanted to prosecute her for bigamy. Um, and then, you know, that all passes and she becomes who she is today and has been for about 50 years, the celebrated icon of a country. I don't think there's an Italian person alive who does not at some level see Sophia Loren as, as kin, as, as a mother, grandmother, sister figure. 
When did La Dolce Vita, as, as a concept, as we've been talking about it, when did it start to go into descendancy and why? You know, it, it, it's, it's one of these things where it was so, it was superficially gorgeous. You know, you, you wanted to be there. You look at the suits, you look at the cars, you look at, you know, these wonderful spectacles of, of modernity and modern behavior happening on ancient streets. And it's, it's very alluring. But at the time, it was corrupt from the inside. And, and that was only going to uh, weaken, weaken the foundation of it as it went along. The thing that Italy didn't have that they did, we, we did have in America and, and existed as well in the United Kingdom was a youth culture. Um, in Italy, the primary social unit is, is the family, not the individual. And the, um, the, the idea that you would break free from, from the old ways just never dawns on an Italian person. Their mother is the best cook and she does your laundry. You know, why, why would you leave? Um, so when teen culture came into prominence in the 60s, um, particularly with the rise of the Beatles and swinging London, Rome looked old hat overnight. Um, you, you go in 1963, there's, uh, the film Gidget goes to Rome, which is a terrible movie. Um, but the, the young people in it are walking around wearing suits and formal dresses and, you know, the girls have purses that match their shoes and, and, and they look like they could be, you know, stepped out of a department store window from the forties. Meanwhile, in London, you know, the Beatles are already recording and, and young people are like expressing themselves in, 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 in youthful fashion, youthful manners. So the combination of the sort of gangrenous core that was always part of, you know, uh, Roman culture and, and politics and, and scandal and the failure to recognize that the, the next wave of, 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 the, of the global culture would be driven by youth. I think that's what finally killed it. But it didn't, it didn't crash and burn. It just sort of kind of slowly faded. Um, it wasn't really, you know, it's, it's sort of like, a, if you will, a Roman candle. You know, some of, the, some of the sparks that come out of it just go higher than others, and then they're kind of gone, and you can't say exactly when they've burned out. It's interesting that political and sex scandals moved to London, moved to England as well, with the Perfumo scandal in 63. Right. The difference being that, you know, it brought the Profumo scandal brought down a government and the, the Wilma Montesi murder after 10 years, nobody went to jail and nobody really got a terrible punishment. The people who were implicated in it carried on. Um, the, the Romans have a way of just shrugging these things off that, you know, Americans and the British would, would, you know, stamp their feet about for years. How do Italians today look back and Romans today look back at this period? Oh, it's it's with great fondness. Um, you know, it, traveling through through Rome, you know, and seeing souvenir shops and stalls, everyone's got for sale pictures of Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck on the scooter from Roman Holiday, or uh, um, Anita Ekberg and Marcella Mastroianni kissing in the Trevi Fountain in La Dolce Vita. Um, you can buy Via Veneto street signs. It's, it's become one more layer of their history along with, you know, classical Rome and papal Rome and Borgia Rome. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, the Romans have this capacity to absorb 
you and your history and your manners and make it theirs. And, and, you know, they especially do that with anything that they've generated. It's interesting that the film, to sort of bring it back to where we started, the film really came almost at the end of it. And, and really it sort of went downhill from there. Yeah, it's, it, it really is um, sort of the climax. Um, you know, it's it, it, in some ways, in the way I've written the story, the film is the hero. It's like the, 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 what it has all been building toward. And there it is perfectly encapsulated in a three-hour time capsule. Um, everything you would want. There are specific Roman fashions. There's peeks behind the scene into how the movie business works. There's, uh, the, there's a very famous sequence in La Dolce Vita, of some children who claim they've seen the Virgin Mary in a tree and trick the media and really they're just playing. That actually happened in 1957. So all these real things are there and it's almost as if Fellini had to wait until he had three hours worth of it to film it. Um, He'd been wanting to make a film about modern Rome for about six years and he kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And then In one summer, he realized he had all the materials. It was just a question of organizing it. It was um, one of his collaborators said, it's like we took a Picasso and broke it apart, and now we're gluing it back together. And that's that's what you have. It's it's the culture of the moment rendered anew. Um, But as you say, at the end of it, but maybe that's because he needed it all to get the picture made. Sean Levy, his book is Dolce Vita Confidential. Sean, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, thank you. This is great. Thanks. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.